My name is Joe. I'm an alcoholic. It's good to be here. Happy holidays. I remember my first Christmas, and I was terribly messed up before Christmas because um, it was before Christmas, and I was terribly messed up during Christmas because it was during Christmas, and I was terribly messed up after Christmas because it was after Christmas, and I realized one day that I was messed up because I was dying of untreated alcoholism. It had nothing to do with the day, holiday, because I took a treatment for alcoholism suggested in our big book, and I've had nine great Christmases since. I've been invited home ten years in a row. That's not the way it was when I got here. It's even surprising to me to be invited back to Old Town again. Some of you that know me, uh, not only did I not get invited back to too many places when I was drinking, I don't I don't always get invited back too many places sober uh, when I'm asked to talk. I have um, strong ideas about the program uh, based on my experience. It's no longer just an opinion once you have a little more than five years. Uh, <laughs> I think some of my ideas about Alcoholics Anonymous are because I really care about Alcoholics Anonymous. And I learned from a man who really cares about Alcoholics Anonymous. More than just for what I can get, because I've gotten more than I ever dreamed of. I have this idea now that I would like AA to be the way it was when I got here. And that somebody be there with the message of Alcoholics Anonymous that was there when I got here in my first meeting. When my children grow up, and when your children grow up, I don't think I've ever cared about anything anymore in my life. And I have a stronger feeling for the power and presence of God that came to me through the process in Alcoholics Anonymous than I've ever had for anything, including alcohol. And I never thought I would be able to say that about anything. Because I really cared about alcohol. Alcohol was more important to me than any family member ever. Than any girlfriend ever. Than any place. Than any school. Than any job. All the way down the line. Alcohol was my higher power. It did for me what I couldn't do for myself. There's a funny little exercise you can do. Not only to see what alcohol did for you but to see what the program of Alcoholics Anonymous has done for you if you have involved yourself in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. You can go through the promises on page 83, a few of our promises. I feel sorry for people that think they're the only ones and that there's only 12 promises in Alcoholics Anonymous, but there are some great promises on page 83 and there's some great promises before page 83 and there's some even more fantastic promises after page 83, but the ones on 83, if you read those to yourself and say, when alcohol was working, blah, 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 you'll find they all came true when alcohol worked. 
fear of economic insecurity. Buy the whole bar drink, right? Fear of people. You know, you, you fight the biggest guy in the bar. When alcohol was working, I would know a new peace and a new freedom. No matter how far down the scale I had gone, I thought my experience could benefit others. On and on and on. I'd like to thank Pat for inviting me. Great name for an alcoholic. Pat Bach. <laughs> so much for his anonymity, right? Well, I thought it was just Pat. Pat B, right? I, uh, I've become real interested in the last year about a couple things. And, um, one of them is this idea about awareness and perception. I come to you a year ago or two years ago or three years ago with a lot of ideas that were black and white. I had these ideas that some things that I thought were negative were all negative, and some things that I thought were positive were all positive. And something's happened, um, I believe, through some work with Steps 10 and 11, and continued work in the Steps in the last couple of years. A lot of my old ideas aren't black and white anymore. I have seen some things that I thought were totally... I mean, I had this one-sided mind that thinks that something like self-will or defects are all negative. And I've seen in the last couple of years that self-will has gotten me to some great places because I get back to God and some of my great, some of my biggest defects have attracted more people than some of my greatest assets. And I've seen things that I thought were totally good, like helping others. I've seen myself and other friends use helping others to keep from looking at themselves to get lost. And I've started to see that within within every negative there's positive, and within every positive there's negative. And my perception changes. My sponsor has been saying something to me for uh, ten years that I just recently got. Um, even though I've understood it, and even though I've sort of got it, I really got it these last couple of years. And what it, what it was that he's always said to me is that nobody in this room is any closer to God than anybody else in this room, and nobody in this room is any closer to God than the last time you took a drink, because he hasn't gone anywhere, and what really changes here is our awareness of a presence that's been there all the time. And my perception changes. And I start to see you different. And I start to see me different. When I, when I, when I got that. It's kind of like the difference, this kind of awareness. The awareness of truth and power is kind of like the difference between what you thought it would be like to have an orgasm the day before you had one. <laughs> and what you thought it would be like to have an orgasm the day after you had one. Right? I had these ideas about what it would be like to have an orgasm before I had one. My buddies told me it feels good, it's wild, it's fun. My older brother told me some stuff. If I had these ideas, but the day after I had one, I really knew what it would be like to... Similar to a spiritual experience. Right? 
the analogy is similar to a spiritual experience. Um, two twin brothers, identical in every way, decide to go off and, and find out about having an orgasm. They're about 10, 11, 12 years old. One of them goes off to school, and he learns everything he can about what it would be like to have an orgasm. He becomes so knowledgeable in the field that he becomes a professor at Harvard University. And he teaches a class on what it would be like to have an organ. He knows more than any human in the world should ever know about what it would be like to have one. The other brother goes off and within a week or two finds a little girl and she shows him how to have one. Which one knows more about what it would be like to have one? I have from time to time in Alcoholics Anonymous, especially when I was new, I've drummed up these ideas about God trying to convince myself. My friend that's with me tonight, G.W., grew up in a family where his father was a minister, and he was always the little kid in the church that was baffled by those that could just come to believe. I believe. And he would sit there wondering, why don't I? And I've had that same experience in Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, I'm the guy with 90 days that got up to take a chip, experiencing the consciousness of the presence of God in all my activities. And it was bullshit. I had an idea that maybe something was happening that I wasn't ever able to do because I never stayed sober for 28 days for 17 years. But it was like it was like a dream world, right? Um, and 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 my book talks about worshiping the God of reason. And I think if I could share anything with you tonight would be experiences that I have had from the very first time I went through the steps where I've literally been taken beyond what I know. And that's a hell of a deal for a guy that thinks truth only goes as far as he thinks. The book talks about reasoning, our thinking, our logic being the alpha and the omega, the beginning and end of all. And it talks about us worshiping the God of reason. And for me, that has to do with this idea that what I think is true. And it, there probably isn't any more truth than what I think. And anybody that has anything other than what I can understand is wrong. And if I can't understand it, you know, I'm the guy that when I was new, I would hear somebody talk about stuff that I have experienced in the last couple of years with 10 and 11. I would say, it's so intellectual. Because anything I can't understand has to be something that's bad. Because I worship my own mind. And it's true if I think it. And if I say it more than once, it's really true. And if I've said it from the podium more than twice, it's gospel truth, right? Because I have this ego that does that. Um, perception is an interesting thing. What really changes here, if you ask those that have been around for 10 years or more? Money comes and goes. In my case, relationships come and go. Friends, believe it or not, in AA, come and go. Jobs, come and go. I find that on a regular basis, what really changes here is my perception of truth and my perception and awareness of God. I also think they're both the same. And I believe if you're involved in a process of seeking truth, you're involved in a process of seeking God. I watched a movie several months ago, and most people would say, your perception of this movie has nothing to do with where you were spiritually. I think it has everything to do with where I was spiritually. 
where I was spiritually was holding on to four or five amends I didn't want to finish from that year's inventory. I go through the first nine steps every year. And I live the rest of the year in 10, 11, and 12. I, uh, I'm not into debating. I do that because the people in AA that have what I want, that's what they do, and I don't ever want to drink again. And I have the kind of ego that rebuilds itself after a period in 10 and 11. And I'll start telling you things like, I haven't caused any harm in the last year. <clears throat> Why would I need to write inventory? So I go through the first nine steps every year, and I had four or five amends I wanted to hold on to. I, I didn't want to make them, and I was holding on. And I see this movie called Jacob's Ladder. Great movie. And I think it's a movie about a guy who almost died in Vietnam and then had trouble living when he came back. And I miss the whole thing at the end that Danny Ayeo says to him. I finish those four amends, and I, and I, and I get free. And I see the same movie. Now, that's all I did in a couple months period. And I saw the same movie again. And it was the story about a guy who died in Vietnam. And the rest of the movie was about everything he wasn't willing to let go of just before he died on the operating table in Vietnam. And at the end of the movie, this guy says to him, if you're holding on and you're not willing to let go and you're afraid of dying, all you'll see are devils tearing you away from your life. But if you've let go and you're willing to go and you've made your peace, the same devils will be angels taking you to a better place. It all depends on how you look at it. And my perception changes. And as my perception changes, my awareness changes of a power that I'm interested in seeking. And for a guy like me to be interested in seeking anything but self is an amazing thing. I was in Denver a few months ago and I was at a meeting. There was this guy whining about traffic. Oh, driving in Denver is terrible. I hate driving in Denver. And I'd been there for a week, and I'd just been breezing around town. And I said to the guy, you ought to go to Los Angeles and drive for about a week. But he and I had been driving the same week in the same town, and our perceptions were different. A couple years ago, I was engaged to be married. To, um, to uh, um, God's will. And um it was it was a direct it was a direct revelation from God Almighty. Uh, absolutely. And um and uh she left me. And uh that's the truth, right? She left me. That's my truth. That's the truth. I mean if you would have asked me that week, why are you angry? Why are you hurt? Why are you hurt? Why are you upset? I would have said because she bitch. I usually don't say that, but I, I feel free down here tonight, right? <laughs> left me. She left me. And one of my friends says, why don't you go home and write inventory about her leaving you? And the, the inventory process in our big book is so tricky that it takes what you think is the truth and it asks you to put it down. Why are you angry? She left me. And then somehow I'm given the grace to see where seven different areas of self were hurt, threatened, or interfered with when she left me. Well, see, when she left me, it hurt my self-esteem. Why? But see, no, my ego tells me nobody should leave me no matter what I do. It hurt my pride. Nobody I know should see me being left by anybody. It makes me look bad. It'll make you look bad. <laughs> ambition. It affected my ambition because I wanted to stay no matter what I do. 
I wanted to beg for my forgiveness. I wanted to grovel at my feet. I wanted to come crawling. I want a lot. My ego wants a lot of different things. It hurt my security. Biggest lie of all when you're dealing with the ego. And you know what my security was telling me? I need her to stay. To be okay. To exist. I need her. If she, if she doesn't come back, you'll die. Right? That's what my ego says. It definitely affected my sex relations. Right? <laughs> women don't leave men. Right? Men leave women. Right? <laughs> don't be mad at me. That's just my ego. It's not me. That's the biggest lie of all, right? That's not me. That is me. In all my shining glory, that's what, that's what I am. Then somehow I'm given the grace to see where selfishness, dishonesty, self-seeking, and fear, and how I do those with her, drove her away. And the truth became a lie. And the lie that I had anything to do with it became the truth. And my perception changed. And all of a sudden, I couldn't go around to meetings anymore after that day and say, She left me. She didn't leave me. That's what changes you. My perception of me, my perception of you, my perception of God, and my awareness of all three of those things. I used to have this idea that my uh, drunk log was why I'm an alcoholic. And I used to think um, that I drank because of how I felt. And I had this great attachment to my drunk log. It's kind of screwed up because I can't really tell the stuff about my story that some of you would like to hear. Those of you that like to hear what it's like, what it was like, what it was like, what it was like, what it was like, and what I think it should be like today, right? Or the dream I have about what it's like today, right? But some people sat down with me. You know, you know about you know about drinking with a head full of AA. Well, there's another deal that goes on here where they can not only mess up your drinking, they can mess up your drunkalog. And some guys, some guys sat down with me one night. And they messed up my drunkalog by asking me a question that I'm as guilty as anybody else of not asking that much anymore unless you ask me to help you. And the question was, Joe, why do you think you're an alcoholic? What? What, what do you mean, why do I think? Why do you think you're an alcoholic? Maybe you're in the wrong room. Because, see, these guys didn't assume that because I was in the room, I was in the right place. That would be like a heart specialist assuming everybody in the waiting room has a heart problem, so you just take them all in the back and start to treat their heart without making a diagnosis. That would be medical malpractice. That would be insane. And these guys loved me more than that. They assumed that maybe I was just crazy in the wrong room. right? And believe me, since then I've met some people in these rooms that asked me for help, and I helped them find out they were in the right place, and they got free, and they thanked me. So these men say, why do you think you're an alcoholic? I said, well, I went to treatment ten times. They said, wrong. A lot of stupid hard drinkers go to treatment more than once that are about as much alcoholic as the man in the moon, and some of us have never been to treatment. What does that mean? We're not. I said, but, but, alcohol put me in the Michigan State Penitentiary when I was 19 years old. They said, wait just a second. What did they put you in the Michigan State Penitentiary for? I said, writing bad checks. They said, writing bad checks put you in the Michigan State Penitentiary. And, a lot of hard drinkers go to the penitentiary who can drink tremendous amounts of alcohol and get in trouble 
and even have a habit for alcohol. Our book describes the person. A hard drinker can have a habit badly enough to gradually impair him physically and mentally, but give him a good reason, he can stop. There's a lot of people out there that can drink tremendous amounts of alcohol. Remember some of those guys in the bar? In the bar, they look just like you. Some of, Sometimes they drink you under the table. But then you both go home and you both get a threat from your wife that they'll leave if you don't stop drinking. And he stops drinking and, and never has another drink based on her threat. And you're drunk the next Friday. And you wonder, why couldn't I do what he did? He got the same threat. Oh, maybe I don't care about my wife as much as he does. So... So, all of a sudden, I wasn't attached to the drama of where my drinking took me so much. So, my ego shifts up on me. See, because what the ego wants to do is keep the problem out here, right? Them. Or for us guys, it was a, it was her. She was, That was a good one, right? You're not even in a relationship, and it was her. She, she did it to me, right? I'm like the guy that's been sober forever, and God forbid he's on his deathbed. And he looks up at his wife. This is how I think. He looks up at his wife and he says, Honey, after all these years of sobriety, I've realized one thing. And she says, What's that? And he says, Well, you were right there that time I got shot. And you stood by me. And you were right there that time I lost all our money in business. And you stood by me. And you were right there that time I had a stroke. And you stood by me. And you've always been right there. And you've always stood by me. And after all these years, I've realized one thing. And she says, What's that? And he says, you're a friggin' jinx. Right? He's the guy in AA that has a shit happens bumper sticker on his car, right? Believes he's a victim of bad luck and circumstance, right? Greatest statement of hope in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is our troubles are of our own making. Thank God. Because if they're of your making, or her making, or his making, or mommy and daddy's making, or those people that are dead's making, if my problems are of their making, I'm screwed because they're going to have to change and get well for me to get free. Thank God when I made that first inventory list, my troubles weren't of their making. And I started to see that I'm not an alcoholic because of the trouble I got in, that's just the trouble I got in. Because some of you haven't gotten in a lot of trouble, barely left the house, never went to treatment, never went to the penitentiary, and you're just as much alky as I am. And I started to see what my ego was doing in a program that I wanted to fit in with you. Now, that's insane enough in itself. Isn't it insane that if at a 30 or 60 or 90 days, I wanted to fit in in Alcoholics Anonymous? I mean, healthy, well-adjusted people don't just walk down the street and go... Gee, I'd really like to go fit in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I wanted to fit in Alcoholics Anonymous, but you know what my ego had done? My ego started to get me to use the things that separate me from you to tell you why I'm one of you. And it wanted me to separate myself from you. But these men started to share their experience, strength, and hope with me that we could look at a, a common problem. And they started to talk to me about the common problem of alcoholism. Where if I'm sitting in my living room with a 70-year-old lady from another ethnic background, never been to treatment, never been to jail, never never gotten much trouble, she and I can talk about these two things, and all of a sudden, we have a common problem. And I was talking about our common differences. And these two men 
started to talk to me about two things with booze. What happens when you start to drink, and what happens every time you stop drinking. And I started to see why I'm an alcoholic, and why I'm powerless over alcohol. The most you'll ever find out about looking at where your drinking took you, was where your drinking took you. It's kind of like therapy. I spent 12 years in therapy, became a therapist in a treatment center, drinking with the director of the program that I worked for, and um, that that's about the only thing left to do when you've been to seven or eight treatment centers is become a therapist in one, right? <laughs> Alkies understand that. You're either a patient in one or you're a therapist in one. You're either a convict or you're constantly next convict, <laughs> right? So, um, I had all this therapy background. And the most I ever found out in therapy was a lot about how I felt. Then you just have a lot of information about why you're so miserable. And I come to A and I start thinking that if I get in touch with my feelings, I can stay sober. And I spend six months getting in touch with my feelings. And I wake up one day and I am in touch with my feelings. And it is at a deeper level than an emotional state. It is a spiritual malady. And you'll never solve an emo a spiritual problem with an emotional therapeutic path. But maybe I don't have a spiritual problem. Maybe that day I woke up, it was just a bad day. Maybe I just felt a little off. Well, I woke up one day five and a half months sober. And I saw the root of my disease. See, these men talk to me about the symptoms. What happens to me when I start drinking? And what happens to me when I start drinking is that I crave more booze. And it has nothing to do with how I feel. I had a guy come up to me one time in West Hollywood. And he was going to use the book on me, right? He obviously didn't know who he was talking to. But he was going to use the book on me. And he was going to say, you know, it says there in 1939 we realize we only know a little. God will disclose more to you and to us. And now in the 90s what's been revealed to us. I don't know who he meant us. But he said, what's been revealed to us is... It's no longer a physical, mental, and spiritual disease that no human power can relieve. It's a feeling disease based in shame. I said, let me ask you a question. You ever drink when you felt bad, full of shame? He said, yeah. See, that's what he was trying to get me to see, right? I said, but did you ever drink feeling good, pumped up, thinking you were the greatest thing in the world with no shame? He said, um, yeah. I said, did you ever drink not feeling much at all? He said, yeah. I said, did you ever drink not to feel? He said, yeah. I said, do you ever drink to feel? He said, yeah. I said, then what the hell does alcohol care about how you feel, whether you drink it again or not? And I started to see and lose my attachment to circumstance and emotional state having anything to do with why I admit to you that I'm an alcoholic. Because whether she leaves or whether she stays or whether it's sunny or whether it's rainy or whether feeling good or whether feeling bad, I have a little bit more than low self-esteem. I heard George Carlin a few months ago on HBO. And he said a couple things that interested me. He's got a great mind, right? And, um, or a really screwed up mind, one or the other. But <clears throat> he says, he says, you know, we live in a society where we want to shield each other from death. And I don't want to say anything to make you uncomfortable because I don't want you to say anything that will make me uncomfortable. So we shield each other from death and we take words that used to offend people and we change them so they don't sound that bad anymore. And I thought to myself, you know, we do that in Alcoholics Anonymous. 
Rather than say that so-and-so drank, I'm scaring the newcomers with alcohol, right? We use cute little terms like, he slipped. He slipped. It sounds nicer, right? Right? Then, then he said that um, we also live in a society that believes if you change the name of the condition, you can change the condition. And he gave several examples I can't remember right now, and I thought to myself, you know, we do that too in Alcoholics Anonymous. Rather than admit to you that I have a threefold disease, body, mind, and spirit, that no human power can relieve. See, I don't like to admit that. Maybe now in the 90s it's just um, low self coupled with obsessive compulsive behavior. I mean, doesn't that at least sound like something if I can't make it go away, we can all make it go away together? Well, if it's not obvious by now, and from every inventory I've ever written, I have probably had more esteem for myself than anyone in the world would ever be interested in having for me, and drank, and drank. And I have probably had less esteem for myself than anyone in the world will ever have for me, or ever be interested in having for me, and didn't drink. So I think where me and alcoholism are concerned, I got a little bit more than low self-esteem. What about obsessive compulsive behavior? I like wintergreen lifesavers. I really like wintergreen lifesavers. My friends know if you want a wintergreen lifesaver, just ask Joe, right? I'm probably a little obsessive or compulsive with my wintergreen lifesaver usage. But you'd really have to stretch your mind to convince me that's the same as alcoholism. What about addiction? Some of you smoke cigarettes. So do I. I'm addicted to nicotine. Some of you drink tremendous amounts of caffeine. If alcoholism and addiction are the same thing, then those of us that smoke and drink coffee aren't sober. And you'd really have to stretch your mind to convince somebody that drinking coffee is the same as alcoholism. And thank God these men talked to me about the difference between addiction and alcoholism. Because you know what? I've been able to help some guys that are absolutely powerless over drugs. Once they start using them, they can't keep themselves stopped. The same way I am over alcohol. But you know what they can do with alcohol? Just about whatever the, the hell they want with alcohol. Sometimes the most it does is take them back to what they really like. And they're powerless over where it takes them. That's not the same way I'm powerless over alcohol. Now that doesn't mean they can stay sober and drink. I found guys that are both. I found guys that thought they were one and found out they were the other. Thank God these men didn't think we're all a bunch of cows. And that if you had a problem with one thing, that automatically makes you an alcoholic. I don't know about down here, but up where I live, there's a common belief, and I've heard it before. I've heard people say, I didn't never really drink. I didn't really even like alcohol. But my sponsor tells me I have alcoholic tendencies. Well, I'm sorry to say this, but I drank booze, and I drank booze in a certain way. It doesn't have anything to do with trouble or strife. It has nothing to do with how long or how much. But I drank alcohol a certain way. And I believe in God. And sometimes that's not even an acceptable thing anymore in AA. I drank booze in a way where when I drink it, once I take a drink, I crave more beyond anything I can bring to my mind. The day of my dad's funeral, my mother begs me not to drink. I'm brought from a white room in a psychiatric ward to my father's funeral. 
for the first time in six years that I've been drinking. She begs me not to show up drunk. And I walk across the street to say hello to a friend. He asks me, do I want a beer? I tell him I'll have one or two just to calm down. And somewhere between the second one and the twentieth one, I lost the kind of power that it takes to choose how much I was going to drink. And I showed up to the point where the guard that brought me from the psych ward tied me to a tree by my ankle with a chain at my father's funeral. And I didn't want to do that. And I didn't choose to do that. And I didn't decide to do that. Two and a half years later, they let me out of the Michigan State Penitentiary. And for 28 days, I didn't take a drink. Until I did. With every good reason in the world not to. My P.O. had just said to me, if you drink, take drugs, hang out with ex-felons, or leave the county without our permission, you're going back behind the walls. I walked out of his office feeling good. Into a bar to buy a pack of cigarettes, picked up a drink, called the next fellow, and drove out of the state to a dope house. <laughs> with no thought. With no thought about what I was doing. I commit the most insane act of my life. I remember the night they brought me out from behind the bottle. Remember, remember some of us in this room, including myself, when we used to use the old excuse? Oh, honey, I was drunk. And you love to go make amends to people and talk about what, what you did to harm them when you were drunk. But you hate making amends sober for the little petty things you do sober because you can't say anymore. I was drunk. But I'm sitting there one night with these guys and they say to me, make a list of the ten craziest things you ever did. And I make this list and every one of them is under the influence. Drunk, 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 drunk. And this guy shakes his head and he says, son, I'll bet you $10,000 the most insane thing you ever did was absolutely bone dry. Number one, the most insane, not number five, not number eight, the most insane thing was absolutely bone dry with nothing in your system at your very best further away from your last drink than you'd ever been. And they brought me out from behind the bottle because that night I saw that for me to pick up the first drink, based on my experience with alcohol, 28 days out of the penitentiary, in better shape than I've been in a long time, at my very best, further away from my last drink than I've been in a long time, I commit the most insane act of my life. And that alcoholic insanity is not the crazy stuff we do under the influence. Not that we don't do crazy things under the influence. Not that I haven't done crazy things under the influence. But the insanity of my life is that tonight I could walk out of here with every intention to go back to where I came from, get a good night's sleep, get up tomorrow and go home to Santa Monica. I could walk out of here feeling good and pick up a drink. And that your power and my power and no human power would be able to provide what I need unless the power and grace of God is there. Now, whether you choose to recognize that, I don't think God really cares. Because I've seen people in this program make genuine surrenders based on genuine bottoms and go 5, 10, 15, 20 years and wake up one day and take the credit. Still experience the grace of God. And I found at seven and a half years, about a year and a half, about two years ago, 
seven and a half years sober, I found within myself a form of denial, stronger than the denial I came to the program with. Now, we all know about that kind of denial. We hear it talked about all the time. The denial of the disease of alcoholism. You go to treatment or you come to AA, we help you with your denial. To deny the disease you have. That's a pretty strong form of denial, and I came here with some. But I found within myself, seven and a half years sober, a form of denial that I don't hear talked about in the program much anymore. And it comes out real subtle within me. You'll hear somebody take a birthday cake, five, ten, fifteen, twenty years sober. He'll get up, and what's the first thing somebody in the back of the room says? How did you do it? Hmm. Subtle, isn't it? And he'll admit, he'll say, my name's Joe, I'm an alcoholic, and I'm powerless over alcohol, and my life is unmanageable, and then he'll proceed to spend 15 or 20 minutes telling you what he does to keep himself sober and manage his life. And it's real subtle. Sometimes it's not real subtle. Sometimes it comes out of me, or within me, or in my head, or I hear it from one of you, something like, I just don't drink, no matter what. And you know what? If I could just not drink no matter what, I would not be here nine and a half years sober in, La in, in San Diego on a rainy Sunday night. I would be out doing in my life just not drinking no matter what. And when you meet guys like me, when one of you meets guys like me, when they come in this program, mad dogs. And you know when you see them with that look in their eye, you know what they are when you meet them. Don't just tell them not to drink no matter what because you know what those guys do like me? They drink no matter what. I have not made up my mind about alcoholism. I don't just not drink no matter what. If I had the power to do that, I wouldn't need power. See, but my life history proves for 17 years, I drink no matter what. What do I think? Walking in through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, some, some unbelievable things comes, comes to me, and I can now do that on my own? And see, some of these guys that say that just don't drink no matter what, they leave out something and they know better. Because they don't want to scare the newcomer off with booze or God. But that's all this program is really about, isn't it? And they're experiencing, just like me, seven and a half years sober, and I'm sure again sometime, they're experiencing the denial of the grace of God. Taking the credit. And when I take the credit for what I've got and what I've been given and for keeping myself sober, I am in denial of the grace and power of God. I've taken the credit in this program by the encouragement of some friends that took me to this chapter to the agnostic that some of us just breeze past because we think now that we're sober there's no way we could be agnostic until you find parts of your being that are. I don't have any problem that God removed the obsession to drink and take drugs because I was never able to. I don't have any problem saying to you that for nine and a half years I have experienced the grace and power of God when it comes to alcohol because I haven't taken a drink or a drug. But, faced with certain areas of my life and the question from people that care, do you really think God can take you any further with your relationship? Or with your weight? Or with business? Or with money? I'm face to face. You can look on page 52 and look at each area of your life with your emotional nature, with misery and depression, with being of real use to other people, 
I'm face to face with my agnosticism and I say, gee, I don't know if God could really take me any further. If I'm, if I'm really willing to be honest. And there I am, faced with my agnosticism. But see, there's no real reason to look at any need for power unless you need power. What does my friend say? You really can't go to the second step in a good mood. And if I hadn't seen that I am powerless over alcohol and left to my own devices, I will drink again, no matter what. And my life, run on my will, is unmanageable. And the unmanageability of my life is within me. And if these people hadn't talked to me about a spiritual malady that nobody in any of these treatment centers ever talked to me about, you know, a part of our disease that no human power can relieve. See, you really can't sell for ten or $12,000 a disease concept that no human power can relieve. So what you have to do is, you have to tell them about the body and give them great lectures the first week. Then you tell them about the mind and give them some more lectures the second week. And then week three and four, you pump them up with everything they can do to keep themselves sober, rah, 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 send them out the door, and then we have to bring them to Alcoholics Anonymous and teach them everything they can't do. After just paying ten or $12,000 to learn everything they can do. Most of us that go to treatment a lot have to unlearn more than we learn. Unless maybe you can keep yourself sober. Unless maybe you can just not drink no matter what. Then the second step would never be attractive to you because why in the world would you need power? But when I was faced with the second, with the first step and the true nature of my condition, there's a member of our group that used to say, grace only lasts as long as ignorance. And ignorance can last a long time. But you see a little bit of truth, and you need more than grace. You need some real power to do with the truth you've just seen, to do something with it. And I've experienced that. <clears throat> but if there is a need for power, I become... One of the best ways to do that is, next time you meet somebody, those of you that have been around for a while and you try to help people, next time you meet somebody having trouble with step two, they say they're having trouble with step two, talk to them about step one. You know what you'll find? Probably 99.9% .9 of everybody in this room that ever thought they were having trouble with step two was having trouble with step one. Talk to someone who says they're having trouble with inventory about one, two, and three. And from my direct experience, when I think I'm having trouble with one step, it's always something preceding it. Because you know what? There would be no reason in the world to turn my will and my life over to the care of God or even decide to if running my life on my will was successful. But, I remember a day, sitting in a meeting in North Denver, Colorado, and I was doing the old AA shuffle. I turned it over, and I took it back, and I turned it over, and I took it back. And this old guy that loved me enough to risk my sensitive alcoholic feelings, he says to me, Joe, if you're, why don't you shut up and sit down? And I shut up, and I sat down. He said, if you're still doing that, you haven't turned it over. I said, and I learned to ask the second greatest question you could ever learn to ask in Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, what do you mean? Those of you that are new, when you hear some of these cliches thrown around like you're supposed to understand what they mean, go up to them, these old guys. Go up to them and say, what did you mean when you said, and you'll find out something real interesting in AA. I'm not going to tell you what you'll find out, but you'll find out something real interesting. So I said to him, I said to him, what do you mean? He said, well, son, there's a difference between the decision at the third step and the commitment that follows. 
I said, what do you mean? He said, well, it's like telling someone to go sit in the corner and pray for ham and eggs. And they decide to do that, and they go do that, and then they just sit there. They will probably starve to death. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, if you told someone to go sit in the corner and pray for ham and eggs, and they decided to do that, and they did that, and then you showed them how to make one hell of a commitment and put one foot in front of the other, and they got up and put one foot in front of the other, they'd probably eat ham and eggs. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, the difference between the decision at the third step, I mean, I love when I hear somebody say, I took step three, and I've turned my will and my life over to the care of God. They haven't turned their will and their life over to the care of God, or there'd only be three steps. They've decided to turn their will and their life over to the care of God. And he said, there's a difference between a decision at the third step and the commitment that follows. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, it's like a chicken and a pig walking down the road. And they come to a sign on this church that says, help feed the poor. And the chicken's all pumped up with virtue because he likes to do nice things for people. And he says to the pig, we ought to do something about that. And the pig says, well, what in the world could we do about a hunger problem? And the chicken says, we could feed those poor people ham and eggs. The pig had a little more sense than I did when I took the third step because he said to the chicken, for you that's just a simple decision to lay some eggs, but for me that's one hell of a commitment. Because we're talking about my life. And a couple months later, when I hit a bottom, further away from my last drink than I'd ever been in 17 years, sober, dry, in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, living a lie, thinking I was in AA because I was going to meetings and finding out I wasn't in AA because I was going to meetings. I was a member of the fellowship and there was two other parts to AA that our circle and triangle described that I wasn't even in. So if you're new and you think you're in Alcoholics Anonymous because you're going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, you're not in Alcoholics Anonymous. If you have a desire to stop drinking, you're a member of the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and there's two more parts to this program. But don't sit in one part like I did, expecting the results of the other two parts. Get involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. Unity, right here. Recovery, right here. Service. And I did. I did when there was a need for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I met a man, he said he would take me through the steps, and he said he only knew one way to do that, and that was to start on the title page and go all the way through together. And we started doing that, word for word. Every time the book would make a statement, he'd ask me a question about it. And I stopped looking for answers in the book. And I started looking for answers in here. And I started using this as a set of questions and a set of directions on how to have a spiritual experience. And I found out some interesting answers. And they didn't come from the book. They came from my experience. I found out that I'm an alcoholic. Physically. Mentally. Spiritually. And that no human power can relieve what I suffer from. And I was just a little bit willing to believe that God could and would if I saw him. Then there was a requirement before I took the third step. And boy was I mad because I'd been to a lot of meetings on the third step. And no one ever said that in our big book there is a requirement to take the third step, and that is, I needed to be convinced that my life, run on my will, cannot be successful. And if you're not convinced when you get to that page, they give you a page and a half after it, that to this day I still hate, 
that describes me running my life on my will. The actor who wants to run the whole show, arranging the lights, the ballet, and the scenery, if only things would go his way, on and on and on and on. They describe me running my life on my will and what usually happens. And I became convinced that my life run on my will cannot be a success. And then there was a good reason to turn my life run on my will, or at least decide to, to turn that over to the care and direction of God. And I did the prayer. And I looked at, before I did the prayer, I looked at the third step decision, which has nothing to do with the prayer. And I made that third step decision. And I did the prayer. And I got up off my knees. And I learned to ask the first greatest question you could ever learn to ask in Alcoholics Anonymous. I asked him. I said, Don, if that was just a decision, then how do you turn it over? You know the big mystery in AA nowadays? The thing that they won't tell us anymore? When you get up to share some terrible problem about a relationship, and some person in the back of the room says, just turn it over. And you want to take him and you want to strangle him and you want to say, you know, if I knew how to turn it over, I wouldn't be here. And you figure maybe on your third or fourth birthday they're going to show you the secret button you press to just turn everything over. Well, I got up off my knees and I said, Don, if that was just a decision, then how do you turn it over? And he said, can you count from four to nine? You know those short little things that your sponsor says to you that you just hate? I remember going to him one time and I said, Don, I feel terribly inferior and insecure. And he says, you want to know why? And I've been looking for the answer to that for 12 years. And I said, yeah, why do I feel inferior and insecure? He says, because you're inferior and insecure. (laughs) Or when I went to him after seeing the first step and I said, Don, I'm terribly afraid of my own mind. He says, you have good reason to be. So I said, how do you turn it over? If the third step was just a decision, how do you turn it over? He says, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Isn't that simple? Doesn't it make sense that if step three is a decision, step four is the next thing you do? That was too simple for a guy like me. But nine and a half years ago, I could count from four to nine. And you know what? Today. Sometimes I have real trouble remembering how to count from four to nine. But when I am put in a place of willingness and desperation, and when we're talking about my life and I've gone through these first three steps, and I'm put in that place, that state of consciousness, that awareness of truth, the next thing to do is four. And you do four the way it is outlined in our book, and it will be directly against your will contrary to the way you've lived your life. And to do five with one person, lay the whole thing out for one guy, is directly against my will. And contrary to the way I've lived my life for 30 years. And then to ask something other than you to take that stuff away. I mean, I love when I hear somebody working six and seven. Well, I've been on six and seven now for about nine months, and I've listed my defects, and my sponsor told me what order to put them in, and I'm working on them one at a time. That will be the day that this guy removes any of his defects or shortcomings. I think six and seven are about where God does the work. And I know when I'm done with six and seven when I'm making a list of people I've harmed and becoming willing to make amends to them. That reminds me of a story about my friend that's here tonight. I was sitting in my own home group about a year ago when I was holding on to those four amends. And I had the audacity to say in my home group, I'm praying for the willingness to make amends. 
And in my home group, they, they get to ask each other questions. And when anybody in my home group starts off a question with, is it possible? You're screwed. You might as well just duck for cover. If, if the question starts with, is it possible? You're done. And he says, is it possible you're not praying for the willingness to make amends? And that's bullshit. And I had worked with him. And I thought, the audacity. But I said, what do you mean? He said, I don't think you're praying for the willingness to make amends, and I think you'll know exactly when you're willing to make that amends. Because he knew it wasn't about those four, it was about one. It was about one of them. And I said, how will I know when I'm willing to make amends? He said, you'll start to hear strange noises. I said, come on. I'll start to hear strange noises when I know I'm willing to make amends? He said, yeah. I said, like what? He said, like this. And you know, I started hearing some really strange noises the day I was willing to make that amends. Like knocking on someone's door, like busy signals on the phone, like a pen writing on a piece of paper. And that's directly against my will. And that's contrary to the way I've lived my life for 30 years. So I believe the paradoxes of, of the first step is that if you look at maybe you're not, you might find out you really are. And I believe the paradox of the second step is if you truly admit that maybe you don't believe, you can come to believe. And I believe the paradox of the third step is, if you decide to turn your will and your life over to the care of God, you're given a new life and a new will that you can now start to properly use. And I finished those amends, and I finished them the first, the first set, way back then, and I finished those last four last year, and I start to get really free. And I start to be in a place that I just dreamed of in the second step. And I start to live moment to moment with this consciousness that whatever God has for me is better than anything I have for me. And everything starts to change. And my perception and my awareness of the power of God begins to change. And my awareness and my perception of myself begins to change. And my awareness and my perception of you begins to change. And I start to live free regardless of circumstance, and sometimes there is a place within me where I can go in prayer and meditation, where if I'm not feeling great emotionally, there's peace, or when my head's going a million miles an hour, there's peace, or when circumstances in my life are kind of crazy, and on the same scale but the other end, I'm not an alcoholic because of circumstances in my life or the emotional state that I was in when I drank. And I also say to you tonight, I do not believe in God because things go my way and I feel good most of the time. I believe there is a place where when you're not feeling good and things aren't going your way, there's freedom. And that's what starts to happen when you decide to start to use AA for a little bit more than relief and start to seek freedom. Thanks for letting me share.